We have to disrupt ourselves before other people disrupt us. There's no playbook. Saying no to technology is not an option. Fundamentally, I think the biggest problem in digital is not enough discussion about what really moves the needle and how soon. The array of challenges that are coming is so different and so much more rapid fire than we've seen before in this industry. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast produced by Private Equity International in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. In this episode, we'll be looking at digital disruptions in the context of how best to execute digital transformations. So much money is already devoted to digital transformation programs with varying degrees of success. To talk about those programs, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Katecki. Hey, Chase. I'm not Rob. I'm an AI chatbot programmed with some key phrases he frequently uses. Really? Okay. What kind of phrases? No. Also, why are you doing that? Okay. Well, that tracks. Um, But uh, any chance the real Rob can join us? Trust me, if I could make an AI chatbot that good, you'd have to find a new co-host. The reality is our digital present isn't quite hoverboards and androids in love. I know, and such a bummer, right? I know. This was not the future any of us were promised, but I think we can all agree that the digital revolution has its upside, provided we understand it. Agreed. Uh, Let's dive in and examine how the private markets are looking at digital transformations to create value and to be the disruptors rather than the disrupted. Here's Neri Singh, global head of the digital practice at Alex Partners to set the stage. Fundamentally, I think the biggest problem in digital is not enough discussion about what really moves the needle and how soon. There's definitely been a sort of digital gold rush to tack on tech over the past couple of years, but Just how much are companies spending on these digitization efforts? The estimate of how much companies will spend worldwide this year on quote-unquote digital transformation exceeds $1.1 trillion. Now, that's a very broad definition of digital transformation, but let's just take that as its word. The startling fact is not that that's almost higher than the GDP of Canada, but the startling fact is that 70% of executives aren't so sure what the payback is. I find that a lot of these digitization programs, transformation plans. The board is asking for it. That's Lisa Weaver-Lambert of Microsoft, who works with private equity firms to modernize data management, analytics, and AI application. Then a considerable effort is pulled into PowerPoint and imagining you know, what could be the future and bringing in all sorts of technologies that are available from the market without actually starting you know, with the business what is the focus point in the business that you actually need to digitize? What's the baseline? What's the business case? What's interesting, though, is that no one's starting their digital initiatives from a blank slate. They've all got a history of systems and software that inform their status quo and might complicate anyone's grand plans. Here's Neri from Alex Partners. Especially if you have a visionary CEO, which has a double-edged sword, They'll come back to us and they'll talk to us about digital transformation. And very often the question is, look, uh, you know, I run this retail business. It's X, Y, or Z billion in revenue. I really want to know who's disrupting my sector of retail. You know, who's the biggest disruptor? And those are fantastically good intellectual conversations. But very often we'll find ourselves saying, yes, but your website takes nine seconds to load. Or you don't have a single unified data problem. Or... 30% of the people that walk into your store leave because they can't find a store associate or find a good product. 
And the point of the story is, we realized about eight or 10 years ago that it's really helpful to break down a transformation into two components, one called brilliant basics. If you get them right, you won't win, but if you get them wrong, you will lose. And the second is cutting new ground. And cutting new ground are innovation, new growth ideas. These are call options on your future. And you almost psychologically and certainly financially, and from a CFO's investment point of view, you fund and measure both these very differently. The Berlin basics are six, nine, 12-month ROI. You should be very clear about when the value is coming. You should know what the metrics are. Cutting your ground by definition are new growth experiments that you have to throw stuff on the wall. And it's almost a venture, not a private equity mindset. So we very often find that kind of almost breaking down a transformation into those two work streams kind of satisfies the broader urge of doing the right thing and doing things right. Simon Freakley, CEO of Alex Partners, raises another wrinkle around these issues. This challenge is compounded by the fact that many leaders of companies or private equity portfolio companies aren't themselves digital natives. They are not of a generation where they can be digital natives, but they do have to be digitally fluent and they do have to make sure that their organization has the digital IQ to understand what information they're searching for, what are the best tools to be able to give them that insight and how to move quickly with agility on the insights that come from those tools to do their planning, but also the execution of their strategies. And so making sure that a company has the digital metabolism to be able to really understand how to aggregate, not just the data, but the insight that comes from that data is critically important. And so for senior executives that aren't digital natives, my goodness, they better make sure they have people on their leadership teams or have access to best of class advice because they really can't afford to have many misfires on this because misfires will cost them time. We get the stakes, but the very topic of digital transformation seems so diffuse that it's hard to zero in on what we're really talking about. Neri at Alex Partners has a fairly succinct definition I think is worth using for our purposes. We think of digital as four things. One is how does the technology and the process and everything you know help digital on the outside? In other words, how you interact with your customers, your partners, etc. And this is things like e-commerce, channel enablement, omni-channel. You know, you could have B2B sales portals with your vendors, etc. But it's digital on the outside. And that's what you've been seeing over the last 10 years. I would say 70% of budgets, especially in consumer-facing private equity firms, have gone to digital on the outside. And some tech modernization to enable things like e-commerce and customer journeys, et cetera. Then the second kind is digital on the inside, which is how do you bring digital into supply chain, logistics, digital twins, smart factory, HR, analytics, et cetera. And this is really becoming a better machine, a better company on the inside using digital technology. And there's a series of investments, and especially in industrial goods and capital intensive industries, digital on the inside is almost much more important because that's where the highest capital costs are. That's where competitive differentiation happens if you're Boeing versus Unilever, for example. Then the third definition for us is there is digital ways of working. So the way you launch a new product and a service is a very fundamentally different way is the way you do IT management. The fact that most of our clients do not have a function called product management, which is a critical function in any tech company. The fact that data analytics is a different way of doing business. The fact that you hire in a very different way. So there's digital ways of working. You know, there's been plenty of buzzwords around agile and you know, nimble thinking, but really it's how do you work differently? I think that's profoundly a big change culturally. And then the last one is digital business models. You know, we're helping a lot of our clients go from literally from old school client server software delivery 
do a SaaS model and a subscription model. It would be the same as almost Blockbuster wanted to do a Netflix subscription, but that's a different business model. How do you get into these new things? So from our point of view, we think of digital on the inside, digital on the outside, digital ways of working, and digital business models as the most pragmatically comprehensive definition of digital. I would agree with the classification that Nari has put forward. It's very comprehensive. That was Lisa again from Microsoft. From a private equity lens, what I would add is, you know, digital means something very different if you are investing in a company that is technology enabled. Its core business is something other than technology compared to a technology first company. For example, an AI first company can be a software company. And therefore, the questions around what should you do to accelerate growth differ. The next question is naturally, how do I think about executing whatever digital transformation I'm working on? Do I tap a best-in-class vendor? Do I rely on the in-house IT team? Once I decide what needs to be done, what do I do next? Here's Joseph Piccini, founder and co-managing partner of SGT Capital. As a investor, you know, this is always a partnership. You're always partnering with management to achieve the maximum results for the organization. And quite frankly, for the management that has been there, in our case, we're buying market leaders. They know the business inside and out. They know the business better than anybody out there. How do we work together to, again, on the create value through that digital process? and really be focusing on those areas that provide the maximum amount of value. So if you need a very specific tool, look externally first, have someone that has that experience across multiple different customers that you can rely on rather than building it in-house. It's a very expensive process, takes a long time. And actually the, the benefit that you see, it's unfortunately, in many cases, if you start building it, you're a few years in and all of a sudden what you've been building is behind the times anyway. So we do look externally to, to bring on those resources, to partner with those groups. So what we seek to do is work with partners and work with uh, providers that actually are already at the top level of the specific, you know, whatever tool that we're utilizing, they're already a market leader because as things change in the future, you can change and you can change who your provider is if they're not able to be successful. One of the biggest weaknesses is if you try to build something internally from scratch, then you're always trying to catch up in effect with, with where the market is. And again, here's Lisa. The emphasis, not just on the leadership within the firm, but also having an ecosystem of specialist partners, implementers and, and advisors around the company that can accelerate the transformation of this company. And I think that's a very important consideration that is not just the core team within that company, especially if they are not a tech first company, but they have the right ecosystem around them to accelerate growth. And there are a lot of innovative business models now coming out, which can supplement the resources and capacities of companies in particular areas. Those all strike me as sound principles, but I'm curious, can we get a verdict on projects that are most often worth doing and the ones that are most often a waste of time? Well, I would answer ERP to both. So ERP systems can be the most transformative start to any company 
sort of beginning in, you know, finance, HR, moving into supply chain, and they're the foundations then of bringing through accurate financial reporting, but the implementation and delivery of those ERP systems is why they often fail. Lisa is referring to enterprise resource planning, and Neri has his own thoughts on ERPs and foundational technologies. I agree there are some foundational no-regret moves like ERP and a few others. Cyber would probably be another one. You just have to get it right. It's, it's almost a cost to play. But I think the answer, unfortunately, does depend on the specific industry and the specific kind of company situation. So, you know, we're talking to a financial services provider, you know, quite a large one, private equity owned, multiple private equity owned. And we're talking a lot about digital transformation and digitization. And one of the things that we're talking also is while we're talking about all these wonderful things, including an ERP system, uh, or at least making theirs work, is 12% of their requests on the client side from certain geographies come by fax as of last week. So, you know, while we are talking about the future of cloud and, you know, crypto kitties with NFTs on Mars, 12% is fax. So I think there is something to be said about taking a very kind of open mind as to where the digitization opportunities are and almost zero-based budgeting it. So I'll give you an example where I think the importance of maybe this thinking is, is there, which is there's a client of ours who's a very big insurance provider for white goods, your dishwasher and other things. And they're one of the largest in the field. And they had set up a couple of years ago, a fantastic data and analytics team. They had set up the Hadoop infrastructure Hadoop is a software library slash framework that allows for the storage and distributed processing of large data sets using computer clusters. Thanks for the explanation. I totally understand everything you just said. Me too. I promise. Okay, uh, back to Neri. They had set up the Hadoop infrastructure and they had set up all these wonderful things and worked with one of the large cloud providers on setting up this capability. And quite frankly, they've spent quite a lot of money on it. And they've done all these analysis to try and figure out all these consumer insights and how do you actually get insurance you know, rates to go up and the churn to go down, et cetera. And it turns out that it wasn't the data scientists, but actually it was one of the operators who is probably the least digital person in the company that said, here's what I think will drive customer satisfaction from our insurance premiums. And what they found out after doing all the math about it was, for that category of insurance, white label goods, the single biggest driver of NPS customer satisfaction, that's net performer score, is the availability of spare parts. Because when your dishwasher breaks down, you don't care how good the customer journey is or your mobile app. If you have to wait for two months for Bosch or Melee to give you a valve, you hold the insurance company accountable. And so there is something over here you ask where the value is. The value is based on who you know that knows the industry and what the drivers of value are as opposed to throwing technology on for technology's sake. I fear that today, in some instances, the dice is loaded in favor of the tech because some of the individuals implementing the digital transformation have a predetermined view about the tech. And I think that sometimes puts the cart before the horse. That's Rami Cassis, founder of Parabellum Investments. Because people are thinking about the kind of tech they want to use as opposed to the business problem they want to solve. And so when I engage with businesses, I'm not particularly tech literate, so it's quite easy to lose me. But that then forces the colleagues that I work with to speak to me in simpler language that brings it back to a business language and to a business outcome. Because I, I want to know what life feels like as a consumer, as an end user, and what that experience is, is of fundamental importance. So I think we've got a recurring theme. 
make sure the dog's wagging its tail, and in this case, the dog is the business at hand and the tail is technology. As someone who's a classic late adopter, I love it when Luddites can still manage to make a contribution. But I think it's time to talk about the experts, the in-house tech gurus. When's the time to hire that CIO or that chief digital officer or the next role that sounds remarkably like them? Why don't we go back to Nary at Alex Partners? So I think that distinction has quite frankly been part of the issue. But I do think that there are some distinct capabilities in the CIO organization that are in general missing. One is new product development. Most CIOs do not have a new product development training. And the idea of product management as a capability and as a tool that exists in software companies, for the most part, does not exist in non-tech companies. So when you hear cliches and, and wise cliches like software is eating the world, or cloud is eating software, or cyber is eating cloud, whatever your favorite expression is, the truth is that most CIOs did not grow up with product management as a discipline because they didn't have to. I think most CIOs have pivoted in a very fantastic and admirable way, but there are still gaps in the CIO capability and the skills that are uh, leaving some holes in the digitization journey. Here's Joseph again from SGT. We have found that bringing in someone as a chief digital officer that does have that specific project management background that is forward-looking on what does the business need to move to the future and specifically how does that create value for the overall business tends to be a good pairing together because you don't want to be penalizing someone who has been doing a very good job running technology in the past. They're not doing anything bad because you are where you are. You've rewarded them for being successful in the skill set that they have developed. But we do tend to want somebody else that can bring in a new skill set to help augment that together going forward. So uh, while it is ideal if you can have this same individual, our experience tends to lead us to see that actually this is someone that needs to be augmented onto the management level. It needs to have a new skill set to help drive that future growth. That makes sense. But I think it's time to get back to the stat that we heard earlier about 70% of executives not being sure if their digitization projects are paying off. So how do we measure any initiative? Here's Nary again. If you don't have clear metrics on your you know, automation program that might use certain process bots for debt collection, and if you don't have your before and after lead times, if you don't have your before and after NPS scores, and if you don't have your before and after fixed and variable cost codified, then you shouldn't be surprised if you aren't meeting your objectives. I think there's a very old cliched line which says, if you don't know where you're going, anyone will sort of get you there. Lisa agrees that knowing specifically what you're looking for is critical. I think the transparency of the KPIs is really critical. And I've worked in a number of situations, including a funeral company during COVID, where the transparency of what we were measuring and where we successfully supporting what was required at that period of time from our industry wasn't clear to the investors. But I do think that KPIs sometimes can be too lagged and they can be too quarterly in terms of how boards look at them. So I give equal importance to OKRs, so objectives and key results, because that's what drives a team's performance connected to the KPIs. Here's Neri again. I think there's actually a pretty real challenge where some of the metrics of digital progress aren't purely financial in the beginning. And most CFOs struggle to get their arms around them. So let me give you an example. If you were Disney 
and you were launching a mobile app around Disney streaming, and if you were the CFO, the truth is that probably the one of the two, if not two of the two metrics that only matter in the first 12 months would be the daily active users divided by the monthly active users and the lifetime value divided by the customer acquisition cost. And the reason why these matter is because they are the only proven lead indicators of the stickiness and the recurring revenue from your mobile streaming, in this case, streaming. And the point is these metrics don't fall into standard gap accounting yet. But if you're digital, you know that nine times out of 10, there's a near guarantee that these are leading metrics that lead to financial performance. And I think there is a big discussion to be had with CFOs of private equity firms if they understand what these new leading indicators of digital traction are before it becomes digitally generated money. And we spend a lot of time with CFOs of private equity firms and quite frankly, with private equity investors themselves who are not digitally trained on these metrics very often unless they have amazing operating partners like on on this podcast, uh, on what these new metrics should be. And now back to Lisa. I found that the traceability of the digital metrics through to the financial metrics is then what makes it all click for the CFOs. And just going back to that funeral company that I was working with, Google My Business and reviews wouldn't be the first thing you'd think of if you were sitting trying to evaluate when you could sort of exit that company. But actually, it was the Google reviews on individual branches across the network that was a huge impact on performance. And when we could show the link between numbers of reviews and how many reviews they needed to get in order to feature in the search results and therefore to get the phone call, therefore to get the sale, then it all started to make sense. Suddenly, it's very obvious why that stat is 70%. At this point, I'd expect it to be higher. But I think most of the discussion stresses the need for clarity and thinking about the goals, the metrics, and the best process and partners to accomplish a task. And of course, that task needs to be grounded in actual business priorities, not tech for tech's sake. The argument really is, that humans and technology will continue to collaborate well into the future, but the nature of that collaboration and what that collaboration looks like might change. But it will always be a dialogue between the human and the tech. And here I thought we'd end on a dystopian note. I think we've all had plenty of dystopia in our lives these past couple of years, so I'm glad to end with a little bit of optimism. Thanks, Rob, and thank you for listening to Disruption Matters. Our next episode in the series concerns something that has mixed opinions when it comes to optimism, and that is challenges within the workforce. Join us for that conversation in two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts.